0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. How was the relationship between Muslim and non-Muslim communities theologically and spatially imagined in the pre-modern world? How did religious hierarchies map onto notions of place and spatial distinction and hierarchies? In her dazzling new book, Minding Their Place, Space and Religious Hierarchy in Ibn al-Qayyim's Ahkam Ahl al-Dhimma, Antonia Bozenkhet addresses these questions through a detailed and theoretically charged reading of the famous and crucially important legal text and compendium, Ahkam Ahl al-Dimma by Ibn al-Qayyim al jawziyah Bozenquit forcefully argues that one must approach this text not just as a legal compendium, but as a critical repository of pre-modern Muslim social imaginaries on the question of inter-religious difference. In our conversation, we discuss a range of issues including literary precedents for Ahkam Ahl al-Dimma, spatial mappings and religious hierarchies, relational space in everyday Muslim-non-Muslim encounters and the eschatological status of non-Muslim children. This lucidly written and analytically exciting book will spark interest among specialists and non-specialists alike. Here now is my conversation with Professor Antonia Brzezinski. Uh, hello, Antonia. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network uh, for uh, to discuss this really terrific uh, new book, uh, Minding Their Place. It uh, is an incredible book which conducts a very theoretically interesting uh, and uh, dazzling analysis of a very key text and, and figure uh, from uh, early modern or medieval Islam. Uh, so really looking forward to the conversation. Antonia, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is biographical. So, Antonio, if you could share with our listeners a bit uh, how you became a scholar of Islam, what's your story of your journey, and then how did you get to write this uh, particular book?
0: Yeah, okay. Well, first, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's really nice to be here. Um, and about my course to Ibn al it was a bit of a winding one. I became interested in Islamic studies while I was doing my first degree in theology and religion in Cambridge. And the lecturer that we had for Islam, Tim Winter, was a really inspiring teacher. So I ended up focusing on Islam for the rest of my course, and then after my studies, going out to Egypt to learn Arabic. And I funded my Arabic studies in Egypt through a job with the Thesaurus Islamicus Foundation which is the umbrella organization that runs projects like the Islamic Manuscript Association and the Sunnah project. And so I worked on projects relating to Islamic heritage and the compilation of a new Hadith Encyclopedia. So it was a good learning experience um, about Islamic heritage and Islamic history. I also ended up teaching the Mufti of Egypt, Sheikh Ali Jumma, English, because when he became Mufti, he had to improve his English language skills, so I would meet him for an hour or two every day and we would chat or do grammar exercises. And that was also a good opportunity to learn about Islam and especially political Islam in Egypt. But then I eventually left Egypt and I went to Tübingen in Germany to do what's called a Magister Artium in Islamic studies. Uh, strategically speaking, that was not wise because I didn't know any German. And the Magister Arting degree is actually quite a lot of work compared to a master's or an MA course. Um, so I graduated much later than I had anticipated. And I was really fed up with academia by that time. I got a job with the anti-corruption organisation Transparency International, um, working in the Middle East and North Africa department. And this was the year when the Arab Spring took off. So there was lots happening. It was a really exciting time to be working in the region. But I still didn't manage to stay away from academia for long. Um, after two years I was back. I started a PhD at the Free University of Berlin looking at interreligious relations in contemporary Salafi thought. So that PhD on 21st century Salafi thought turned into a study of a 14th century legal text called Akya Mahladanma. By the Hanbury jurist and theologian Ibn Qayyim al Jawziyah. Um, I had started reading Ibn Qayyim al or Ibn Qayyim while I was in Egypt, and I had already looked at his interreligious thought in his theological work, Hidayat al hayara fi'ad al al Nasara, which means guide to the confused in answering the Jews and the Christians. But this book, Hidayat al-Hayara, is about the theological aspects of religious difference. And Ahkair Mahal is more about social management of um, non-Muslims. So I started reading this after um, I'd gone to Saudi Arabia on a preliminary research trip. And I had met with some scholars and some clerics. And when we got talking about interreligious relations, they often recommended this book to me. So I came home and I started reading it, and it was such a fascinating work for so many different reasons. But at the same time, uh, there wasn't any engagement with it in secondary literature, apart from one very good article by David Feigenheit about the food regulations in the book. Um, It was being quoted a lot, and it was being referred to a lot, but there wasn't much um, understanding of what it actually was. So I thought the book should be studied in depth, and seeing as no one else was doing it, I did that myself. I changed my PhD to focus on this text, Um, and that ended up being the book that's now been published with this title.
1: Terrific. Uh, Thank you so much. So, um, Anthony, I thought to begin, uh, perhaps what what might be useful for the listeners is, uh, before we get to Ibn al-Qayyim and this particular text, uh, uh, I'll ask you that uh, the, as my next question. But I think I think one of the most interesting and exciting things about this book is the kind of theoretical framing around uh place and space that you bring to to this uh, pre-modern text. And the title of the book is "Minding Their Place." Uh, so if, perhaps you could talk a bit about this theoretical framing of your book. Uh, what does what does "minding their place" refer to? Uh, how do you refer to uh, the categories of place and space in how you read uh, this uh, pre-modern uh, legal compendium? Uh, I, I was wondering if you could just explain a bit to our listeners uh, the category of place and how it works uh, in your in your book.
0: Yeah, um, that's a good question, because obviously the phrase finding their place is not a very predictable title for a book about a 14th century legal compendium. Um Maybe I should start by saying that place here refers to um, the social status or the, so- or the social role of the non-Muslims or the vimis um, in society, in Ebn thought. And I chose this phrase, minding their place, because it summed up what I saw as the main argument or message of the book. I think we hear this phrase less often now, but when I was little, being told to mind your place was a way of being put back into the social role that your identity gave you. Um, it was a phrase that implied a whole social hierarchy and where you fitted in, in, in this hierarchy, and which you didn't have the right to change. And I thought this fitted well to Ibn al argument in Aqe'a mahl'a b'maq, which is that Vimis or Christians and Jews living under Muslim rule, do have a role they do have a a place in Muslim society um, and they do have a place in the social hierarchy of of that society. Um, His concern is that they are currently challenging this role and trying to move out of the place that's been assigned to them and that this has terrible consequences not only for society but also for the divine structure that God has given to um, his creation. So his argument that they should mind their place, or they should stick to the role that's been assigned to them, runs right the way through the Mahladamma. So that's one way in which this phrase, minding their place, picks up on the arguments in the text. But if we interpret this phrase differently, it also relates to another argument that Ibn al-Qayyum is making, which is that the Muslim scholars, or the rulers, or the people in the streets, should pay more attention to the place of the non Muslim. Rather than not minding or being indifferent to the ways that non Muslims are usurping or changing their social status, Ibn al is calling on his Muslim readers to take notice or to mind the place of the non Muslim other. Um, so, this is the relevance of this phrase and the reference to place in the title. Regarding space, um, that's a much wider theoretical concept or construct, and I actually became aware or became interested in the relevance of space to Ibn al work um, after my political work with with, um, Transparency International, because while I was working with um, anti-corruption activists in the Middle East, I was interested in how space played a really important role in awareness-raising activities or confronting corruption. It wasn't just about the space that activists could get for the demonstrations or for their programs. It was also about how they used this space in terms of body language and positioning, where they would put any objects that they were using, Um, even where they distributed their information was important for the influence that their message had on their audience. So the spatial dimension of civil activism... Um, of civil protest, of civil unrest, are things that you have to think about when you plan a movement. And often the activists didn't think about these questions because they were just so obvious to everyone involved, even to me, in my office in Berlin. And this was also interesting to me because um, this showed how universal the language of space is, or how easy it is to understand, even for people from different cultural or geographical backgrounds. And so I was reminded of this experience when I read Ahkeem al because so many of the rulings in the book and so much of Nakhayim's discussion of these shows this awareness of the power that space has to convey a message. Um, and sometimes this seems very basic, like the ruling that a non-Muslim should make way for a Muslim when they're meeting the path. And sometimes it becomes more complicated, like the instructions for a Muslim's body language when he enters a non-Muslim's household or the discussion about how to bury a non-Muslim woman who dies while she's pregnant with a Muslim baby, which space does she belong to, and how does the positioning of the body reflect the hierarchy between Islam and the other monotheistic religions? So this was something that I wanted to look at more closely. And there is a lot of really interesting theoretical writing on space and on territoriality and how this relates to power, which is obviously also a key question. So I spent about a year reading through works by Lefebvre and Vissartour and Martina Love and Stuart Eldon. Um, I really recommend these books if people are interested in these questions. But I found it difficult to relate them directly to my topic of a legal compendium written in Mamluk Damascus. I don't think that the language of space is historically or geographically constrained, but I think that the way that we approach the discussion is often quite context-specific. And that's a good thing, and it makes the research more meaningful, but it also makes transferring um, this approach more difficult. Um, For example, Andre Lefebvre, who is really well known for his writing on space and power, is very much focused, or was very much focused, on the relevance of this question, to his criticisms of 20th century capitalism, or or capitalism in 20th century France. And I can't quite see how you can transfer that theory along, or or take it outside of the context of his political views, um, and transfer it to understanding Evnopayim's thought. So in the end, I didn't follow one specific theory or argument. I worked with Lefebvre's um, principles and concepts of space as something that is created through social and economic processes. But for the way that I use this concept, I relied on Martina Love's um, research into the construction and transformation of space and the role of human activity in this. Um, Human activity being voice, body language, clothing, um, and so on. the other thing that I like about Martina Love's writings is that she shows how material structures, um, together with human activity, construct a specific form of space. Um, so, for example, the, the structures and the way that people behave in this space create what we understand as a classroom or a theatre. And she also shows how these spaces then affect our behaviour and even influence the form of relation that we have to each other um i think the other thing that's important for for my work is that as the fair also notes we don't have to think of space as a physical um container of course many of the spaces that ibn al-qayyim refers to in are physically bounded spaces like the mosque or the arabian peninsula but other spaces are metaphorical like the space of a business transaction and this space is also constructed. Through the body language of participants and their awareness of what kind of space they're in. Um, but it's not something that you can define, you, know, you can't put borders around it in the same way that you could with a house um, or a church. Uh,
1: thank you, uh, Antonio. Um, so, next, what, what I want to ask, and, and Antonio, I'm I'm, I can hear you perfectly fine, but just uh, to be on the safer side, maybe a little louder might be useful. Uh, just to be on the safe side, in terms of uh, making sure that uh, you know your sound comes amply through. Uh, the next question I want to ask, Antonia, is sort of a broad question for listeners who may be unfamiliar uh, with this uh, with this text, Ahkam uh, Ahl al and with Ibn uh, al-Jazia. If you could just introduce uh, the author, the text, what it is about, what kind of a text it is, what are some key themes that it has, and a little about the author as well, just to sort of uh, familiarize our listeners with the kind of uh, 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 material you're working with.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, well, Ibn al-Qayyim was a jurist and a theologian who spent most of his life in Damascus. Um, he was born in 1292. He died in 1350, and he didn't leave the city very much um, apart from once or twice, I think, to go on the pilgrimage, and he also visited Egypt. He um, was a very spiritual person. He wrote works of advice or spiritual self-help guides for Muslims that are still read today. He was a Hanbali, which is especially important for understanding his legal works. He was also an early Salafi, which in this context means that he preferred to go back to what he saw as the teaching of the Salaf, or the first generation of Muslims, rather than rely on the tradition that had accumulated in the centuries since then. he wasn't actually that well-known or authoritative. Um, He didn't write very much. I don't think he wrote anything at all, until he um, came out of prison in 1328, after his teacher, Ibn Taymiyyah, had died. In fact, his main claim to fame in the 14th century, and today as well in many cases, is that he was one of the closest students of Ibn Taymiyyah, who was a more controversial figure, and even today attracts more attention for his works and his teaching. Um, So Ibn al-Qayyim was one of his loyalist students. There is so much influence of Ibn Taymiyyah in all of his books, and you can see that in Ahkya Mahla Dhumrah as well. Um, And Ibn al-Qayyim stuck very closely to Ibn Taymiyyah and supported most of the things that he said, he even went to prison with him and didn't come out in until Ibn Taymiyyah died in 1328. And then Ibn al-Qayyim started writing. And he wrote tens of books in all different genres until his own death in 1350. Um, he wrote books on theology, on exegesis, on spiritual um, guidance. He also wrote legal books. Um, and Ahkam al-Adhamma is... Probably best categorized as a legal book. One of my arguments is that it's not only a legal book, but it certainly—I mean, even the title "Ahkam," which means rulings in Arabic, shows that it was seen as a as a a collection of rulings or a collection of laws. Um, so the book itself, "Ahkam al-Adab," is well claims to be, or is claims to be through the title, a collection of rulings about non-Muslims who are living permanently under Muslim rule. As most of the listeners will probably know, the Vimis were the Jews and the Christians who lived as permanent subjects of Muslim rule, uh, not like the merchants that were passing through the Dar al-Islam um, or, the, or the non-Muslims that came for the purposes of war, for example. Um, the Vimis had a contract of protection which gave them certain religious freedoms and privileges in return for obligations and also the payment of a tax for the jizya. So, Ahkya al Vimna contains discussions about this tax and it contains discussions about other rulings specific to this class of subjects in the Muslim Muslim world.
1: Now, uh, you also talk about I'm referring here to the third chapter, some of the, what you call, literary precedents for this text, of how it sort of draws on a variety of different kinds of precedents that include sort of uh, jurisprudential texts, uh, fiqh texts, but also some other kinds of texts like the the Pact of Omar, etc. So maybe very briefly, if you could describe for our listeners a bit, what kinds of literary precedents uh, was uh, Ibn al-Qayyim uh, drawing on, and how, how does he rework them, or what? Uh, how does he appropriate them, or how does he read them, or how does he make it part of uh, his own project? I know it's a big question, but maybe if you could provide some brief examples of uh, what kinds of precedents uh, does he draw on in in writing this uh, this book?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question because in some ways. Um, is an unusual work because it was one of the um, very few works that focused on non-Muslims as a legal category. So most legal compendia address um, the acts. They'll have sort of a, a category or a chapter or, or a section on marriage. They'll have a section on commercial transfer or um, business partnerships. They'll have a section on on burial, but they won't have a section on the identity of the people who are doing those acts. It's all act-based and not agent-based. Um, so, al Halevimra is unusual for that reason. Um, but he does have a lot of different sources that he draws on, and he works these into his book in a really skillful, interesting way. Um, one of the most important texts for his, um, for his book is the Pact of Omar. This was one of the earliest collections of regulations for non-Muslim subjects. Apparently, it was concluded between Umar ibn Khattab and the Christians of Syria, when they were conquered by the Muslim armies. It might also have been concluded later. Um, But it was certainly a a really authoritative collection of uh, regulations for non-Muslims by the time that Ibn al-Qayyim was writing. And he he puts this at the end of his book, And it's kind of the final note on on how um, non-Muslims should be incorporated into a a Muslim society and the way that their theological or religious um, subordination to Islam should be reflected in in spatial terms. Um, Another important predecessor for him is, of course, the legal texts. Um, These are the ones that he draws on the most throughout the book. And a key text for him here is the compendium of Abu Bakr al who was one of the major students of Ibn Hanbal. Abu Bakr al was wrote down many of Ibn Hanbal's teachings, and he actually dedicated the whole volume to um, non-Muslims, called Ahkya al-Milal, And lots of these rulings are then copied into Ahkam al Dhamma, um, but usually not in the same order or in the same manner of presentation that we find in Al-Khalay's book. So Ibn al has edited it quite heavily. And that's really interesting to compare the two and to see the changes or the differences, not only between Ibn al thought and al but also in the Hanbali tradition itself as it's moved on in the years since Al-Khalal was writing and Ibn, Ibn al was writing. Um, another important text is, um, well, I shall certainly mention Ibn Taymiyya's writings, of course. Uh, he, he's quoted throughout the book. We find big chunks of Sirata al mustaqim which is his book uh, on non-Muslim festivals and the dangers of imitating non-Muslims. There's a fatwa about church um, building, which Ibn al-Qayyim also includes, and which hasn't been found in any of Taymiyyah's works. He also quotes from um, al-Sarim al-Masul about um, the cursing of the prophet and the punishment that should be given to a vimli who curses the prophet. And there are other signs of his influence, but we can't, we can't um, assign them directly to a text. It might also have come from there. Um, A conversation between the two men. Um, And then, of course, other authors, other texts, other genres appear throughout Acha Mala But I'd say that those are the main influences on the book as a whole.
1: Terrific. So let's now get to the um, sort of main uh, uh, um, topic, so to say, about uh, the question of space. In ahkam Ahl al Dhimma, and you give multiple kinds of examples of how um, uh, Ibn al Qayyim tries to uh, demarcate sort of distinct spaces, Muslim spaces, Dhimmi spaces, etc. Um, uh, I thought I'll just take uh, maybe a couple of examples, uh, if uh, you agree with those two examples as uh, illustrations. Uh, one was this whole fascinating discussion you have about mosques and churches, and you make this very interesting argument that we might think that he just uh, regards mosques as Muslim spaces and churches as Dhimmi spaces, but it's more complicated than that. So I would like you to perhaps tell us a bit about how he thinks about the relationship between uh, Dhimmi's and Muslims and these uh, spaces of mosques and churches. And uh, secondly, the whole question of death, burial, and the afterlife. Uh, because you make this point that, you know, uh, as you just were saying, the space is not only the physical space, but it can have this kind of a more abstract meaning also in Ibn al-Qayyim. So I think those two examples might be useful for our listeners to get a sense of how you analyze uh, the place of space and how he distinguishes between Muslim and Dini spaces uh, in his text. So maybe with those two examples, you could perhaps uh, talk a bit about uh, that part of your argument.
0: Yeah, um, especially actually his discussion about mosques is interesting because he moves away from what was pretty much an established tradition which saw, um, or at least which allowed Christians to enter mosques when it was necessary. Um, of course, the Prophet's um, house and the mosque in the early, in the early times of Islam had, been a, had functioned often as a meeting place. And so there wasn't really a tradition of prohibiting Christian entry to, to the mosques. But if they have not, him, the mosque is not really somewhere where Muslims, um, where sorry, where non-Muslims should should enter. Um, and he makes this argument with reference to, um, I think he mentions it to, to purity, which is odd because um, he doesn't pay that much attention to purity to, throughout the rest of the text. But when he's justifying the fact that non-Muslims should not enter the mosque. He says they are impure, and therefore the mosque, as a place of purity, should not be um, should not be entered by um, by them. And so this is a this is a point on which he diverges from, as far as I am aware, what was a relatively widespread view that um, that mosques were, on occasion, open to non-Muslims. Um. And it also contrasts with his view of churches, um, which are in some ways Christian spaces and in some ways also not. He's got a much more complicated view of churches, actually. Um, On the one hand, he does acknowledge that these are um, Christian places of worship and they're specific to Christians. And he actually mentions, for example, in regard to foundlings, if a child is found in a church, then he is to be a Christian because he must have been, he must have Christian parents to have been placed in a church. So, here he clearly acknowledges that the church is a Christian place and he even gives this place a form of agency in that it determines the identity of the child found in it. Um, and this is problematic for him because, um, as a Christian space, as a Christian place, um, the church. Is an, is an extremely powerful or imposing building on the Muslim landscape. And I'm sure if we, if we, if we look at some of the church structures that are still standing today, we can imagine how impressive they must have been in some of the smaller towns or in the landscapes of um, um, shared spaces between Muslims and Christians. And because Ibn al pays so much attention to... Um, the power that space has to convince, or the message that space can convey, it's a problem for him to have a church, um, you know, to have a symbol of another religion that is so imposed. So he deals with this um, in a number of different ways. He, um, he discusses at some length whether churches can be removed, um, He does toy with the idea of of removing churches, but he also acknowledges that they do, many of them do have a right to be there. He doesn't agree with those jurists that say that they should all be removed. Um, But he also expresses a form of, or he argues for a form of Muslim ownership over churches. Um, He transmits rulings arguing that Muslims are free to stay in these churches whenever they wish. Um, which was in itself not at all a controversial ruling, that was also um, quite a well-known um, regulation, that Christians were obliged to uh, let Muslims stay in the church if they need hospitality, um, and they were obliged to give them some food if they required it to. Um, but he goes further than this by, um, by giving the Muslims, for example, the right to pray in these churches at any point Uh, regardless of the images that are on the walls. Actually, looking at the question of death, death and funeral uh, rituals and also the afterlife play quite a big role in Ahqam al-Adhamma. And it is quite interesting to see how Ibn al-Qayyim works with these ideas. Um, I referred earlier to the question of the burial of a non-Muslim woman who's carrying a, a Muslim child when she dies and the question of where she should be buried. And what's interesting again in this discussion, when Ibn al-Qayyim is um, comparing the rulings and analyzing them, is his concern that um, a non-Muslim's body as a, is actually a place of punishment. And to put this, this place of punishment, this, this body of punishment into a Muslim graveyard where of course the Muslim fetus um, belongs. Um, is inappropriate. So his ideal uh, solution that he recommends is to put the um, deceased pregnant woman into a space between graveyards, so that she's neither in a place of unbelief nor in a place of belief. Of course, logistically, this was quite difficult. So in the end, he recommends, I think, that she be buried in um, in the Muslim graveyard. Okay, okay, great. Um, and the next bit is when he gets to the question of um, paradise. And of course, um, in traditional Muslim thought, the non-Muslims do not go to paradise and the Muslims do go to paradise. The question is for him, whether chi- what happens with children? Um, and there's a very interesting discussion of this question in Hashem, which he begins by, by talking about Muslim children and he notes that Muslim children do go to paradise, despite the fact that, at that point, they're not actually responsible for their faith, although they haven't really earned it. They go to paradise anyway. And then he brings in the question of non-Muslim children. Do non-Muslim children go to paradise? Because they haven't earned the punishment either, so they shouldn't go to hell, but they haven't earned the reward of paradise. He's very interesting because he brings up 10 different positions on this question and he goes through all of them and he really engages with the pros and the cons of each position and relating to wider arguments. And I found it very interesting that he, he shows in his argumentation and his analysis of the positions real sympathy for the, position, for the argument or the position that non-Muslim children enter paradise on the basis of their Muslim fitra, and on the basis of the fact that they haven't chosen their unbelief themselves. So he likes this position, and yet he he doesn't see it as the correct one. The position that he actually goes for is a little bit more complicated. He argues that the children will be resurrected after their death in a state of moral maturity and intellectual competence, and that they will then be asked to um, accept Islam or to reject it. And of course, Ibn al-Qayyim, as intellectually mature adults, um, they will accept Islam, so they will ultimately enter paradise. And um, so in some ways, he is guaranteeing their entrance into paradise. But I think it's very interesting that he doesn't do this he doesn't allow them to enter as non-Muslim children. His, his trick for getting them in is to change them into competent um, intellectual adults who have embraced Islam. So, and in doing so, he's actually kept the nature of paradise as a Muslim space rather than permitted the entrance of non-Muslims, which he would have done if he'd accepted their entrance um, on the basis of being innocent children. Um, so this is one of the ways that I see him as, as really drawing boundaries between spaces that are Muslim spaces and um, spaces that are not Muslim spaces. And in some ways he's stricter than earlier teachers on this, um, although he often seems to be trying to find a, ra- a way around these boundaries nonetheless.
1: Now I want to turn to another key category that you that really uh, structure your discussion in chapters uh, 6 and 7. And that category is what you uh, call relational space. And you talk about relational space uh, in terms of personal interactions and also in terms of public performance. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners a bit what this uh, means, relational space. Uh, if you could perhaps give a couple of examples. Uh, of this category and then uh, what is ibn al-qayyim's uh, uh, views and how does he engage uh, with this particular uh, sort of uh, uh, category of uh, practices or uh, when it comes to uh, muslim non-muslim uh, spaces and their distinction
0: mm, okay yeah i i saw him in the book as distinguishing between two main categories of space within the dar al-islam the space of the space that was exclusive to one religion, like Muslim spaces or non-Muslim spaces, and the space that was shared by Muslims, Christians and Jews. Um, I say shared, I didn't use that word in the book because it wasn't actually shared in the sense of everybody having equal portion. Um, it's still very much dominated by Muslims, which is important to Ibn Khaldun's thought. Um, but he worked on the assumption that Jews and Muslims and Christians have access to this space. And that's why I called it the Space of Interaction, because he worked on the premise of interaction between the religions in these spaces. And within this category of a Space of um, Interaction, I saw a further um, division between public spaces of interaction and more private and more personal spaces of interaction. So, um, the public space of interaction is what I saw in, in the last section of the book when he was talking about the Pact of Omar. So, you can see I mentioned the Pact of Omar earlier, um, it was a key institution for the regulation of non Muslims, and you can tell how much respect Ibn Qayyim has for this. Um, agreement, because he dedicates, I think, about a quarter of his book to discussing it. He gives two different transmissions of the entire list of regulations. Um, So you actually have two different versions of the Pact of Omar in his book, and he makes note of the differences, but that doesn't really affect for him the question of the document's authenticity. Um, He doesn't question the regulations of the pact, he doesn't criticise them, he focuses on interpreting them and relating them to his argument. And the way that he relates them to his argument really highlights the importance of public rec- representation in this, um, in, this, in this space. So I, I don't know if you know um, the, the obligations in the pact of honor, but many of them um, focus on this public on public spaces like marketplaces and the street, and the way that dominance um, should be expressed in these spaces. For example, one of the obligations in the pact is that the Christians uh, shouldn't live in the houses that are higher than the houses of the Muslims, and this obligation doesn't seem to have any practical significance. Um, and Ibn Al qayyim actually goes into this question. He says, "Is he discusses questions?" Um, that could be of practical relevance to the higher house of the Christian. For example, is it because the Christian might be able to see into the Muslim's household? And he says, no, this is not the reason for the prohibition. The reason is, says Ibn the that an ostent- ostentatious house conveys social prestige. And this is not fitting for um, a non-Muslim in, in the public space. And he gives similar reasons relating to um, the clothing of non-Muslims, the housing of non-Muslims, to show how in this more public space, they should not be conveying an image of prestige or of of honour. What comes through in his presentation then is his concern that in these spaces that Muslims and non-Muslims have access to, Um, and where many people are there that can see it, hierarchy between the religions has to be demonstrated in a spatial sense. The more more audience there is, the more important it is that hierarchy is shown through physical structures like buildings or the way that non-Muslims dress and behave and the way that their religion is allowed to appear. That's why churches are a problem for Ibn al-Qayyim because they are such imposing buildings on the Muslim landscape, and this contradicts the message of inferiority that he thinks that Christian buildings should convey. Um, also, um, Christian festivals is an important topic in Akem and Ibn He's very concerned about Christian festivals being held, but the reason for his concern is not, um, like in Taymiyyah, that Muslims might be drawn to these festivals, they might participate in them, and they might um, begin to adopt the, pra- the practices of the Christians in their own faith. His concern, the concern of Ibn Khayyim, is just that these festivals should not be dominating the public space the way that they do. The Christians should be celebrating in private, and their religion should not be manifested in the public realm. So for him, this public space of um, of interaction which he um, interprets through the Pact of Omer is a space in which the hierarchy between the religions has to be expressed um, spatially, through clothes, through behaviour, through built structures, as um, a means of, of really showing that Islam is the, um, is the final or the truthful religion. And this is really where we find some of his harsher language and his more aggressive um, When he moves to the other category of of relational space that I looked at, which is the more personal category, um, or the private realm of households, shared households between a Muslim man and his non-Muslim wife, or um, a convert and his non-converted family, here is a quite different logic, and that was very interesting for me. for example, when Ibnaqe is discussing the, um, the way that a uh, Muslim man should treat his Christian wife and whether he should allow her the freedoms that her own religion allows her, like drinking wine, for example, he's much more flexible. For example, uh, this is something that I quite like in his book. He says, you know, the Muslim husband should let his wife drink wine, but she should rinse her mouth out before she kisses him. Um. So for Ibn al-Qayyim, in these um, contexts, he seems to be more concerned to maintain the rights of the parties involved, particularly the rights of the women, and um, the rights of the non-Muslims as well. And he's less concerned about demonstrating the, um, the dominance or the power of one religion over another. But of course, in these, uh, in these areas of activity or in these spaces, there's much less at stake because there's no audience. Um, so when the performance aspect is gone, his approach changes, he becomes more pragmatic and he becomes also more sympathetic, I think, to the problems or the difficulties that interreligious relations can bring.
1: Now, you've already talked about uh, uh, children a bit in terms of uh, the afterlife, but you have an entire chapter in which you really have a fascinating discussion about different matters to do with Dimni children. And, uh, you know, there are uh, too many details to, to, for us to really comprehensively cover that. But maybe briefly, if you could talk a bit about, you know, I was curious, why do you think uh, Ibn Qayyim is so uh, invested and so interested in the subject of children? Uh, especially the children, and you outline you outline some key principles that he employs in terms of how he then thinks about you know the status of uh, uh, children in the afterlife and the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the 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 obligation for them to convert or not convert, etc. All these different questions that he deals with. What are some of those principles through which he then uh, again establishes this uh, uh, hierarchy? Uh, that is at work throughout his text. But if you could speak a bit about this specific aspect of his discussion on children and what kinds of principles does he employ in engaging this question of uh, uh, non-Muslim uh, Dhimmi uh, children.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I did find the question on, of non-Muslim children in Akhya Mahlubimah really interesting. Um, and Ibn al to approach to this topic was so detailed and so thoughtful That um, I found, I just found it fascinating the way that he responded to the problems in this in this um, area of of interest. Um, And I think part of it had to do with the fact that non-Muslim children are are people; they are um, God's creation; they are potential believers, and yet they are passive because they're not responsible for their for their faith. And so, in some ways, they're they're important because they're potential converts, but they're also an arena or a a space for testing other ideas about God's justice or about the nature of mankind. So there's so many other different issues that tangent on this question of non-Muslim children. And he looks at two two separate issues. First of all, non-Muslim children before they die, and custody of children, and when they should be allowed to convert, and when they should be forced to convert, and then the question of non-Muslim children after their death, which is what I referred to um, earlier. And um, his reasoning in relation to children um, before they die, so living children, and when they should convert and um, when they must convert is, is very interesting because he he sort of adjudicates between competing claims. Um, the claim of the parents over their child, the claim of the fitra or the inherent sort of inclination of the child, and the claim of the space over the child. Is the child living in a Muslim space or in a non-Muslim space? So he considers various um, scenarios um, and he's and in each for each of these scenarios he looks at which of these principles comes into action, and which of these principles has um, priority. Um, One of them, for example, is if a child is orphaned, if his mother and his father die, um, should he then be made into a Muslim because his parents aren't there, so the parents who had determined that he he would not be a Muslim, um, now that their responsibility for him and their control over him is gone. Is it not Nakhayen, can we then return him to what his original father wanted to him to be, which is a Muslim? Um, and the, um, mainstream, the, the mainstream ruling on this was, was no, he would just be transferred to the custody of somebody else in his family. But if Nakhayen is, is more reluctant to follow this, he, um, he, argues, he argues quite subtly, but quite firmly the fact that once a Muslim, once a non-Muslim child, parents have died, if that non-Muslim child is living in the um, Dar al-Islam or realm of Islam, he should be transferred to Muslim custody because the fitra and the um, and the space now now has the claim over the child. That's just one example. I think if I bring in more examples, um I think it's going to get confusing.
1: So. Uh Anthony, as a sort of final substantive question, I was wondering if you can sort of take a step back and maybe reflect a bit on, you know, through this very interesting study that you've done, this very detailed and theoretically exciting study. Uh, what are some of the sort of larger take home points that you would want readers and listeners to get in terms of what you have tried to accomplish in terms of how we think about interreligious difference, uh, in terms of how we think about reading these uh, you know, early modern texts, etc., uh, or medieval, uh, depending on how you want to categorize uh, this time period. Um, uh, so, what are some of the sort of larger conceptual sort of uh, take-home points that you would want readers to, to 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 get from your your examination of Ibn al-Qayyim and ahkam ahl al Um
0: I think one of the main arguments that I make through the book is that. The el-Adhina is not just a collection of the rulings about non-Muslim subjects. Um, and that's how it's been treated until now in a lot of secondary literature. It's been treated as a sort of resource pool that people have helped themselves to without really asking what the, what the book is in itself. And of course, it is a compendium of rulings and earlier teachings. But I think to see it only as this um, is to ignore the authorial agency in the book. Um, even Al Payan works from earlier sources, but his choice about which source to use, the way that he edits a source, how he relates the teachings to other arguments, all these influence the way that the, te- that the reader understands text. Um, as does the fact that some of the sources that he uses are really not legal sources at all. Um, For example, he has a long stream of anecdotes about non-Muslim bureaucrats um, and the harm that they do if they're employed by the Muslim state. And we don't find that in any other legal compendium. So um, his choice of sources is a little bit eclectic. um, And in addition to this, also the way that he comments on his teaching um, really shows his authorial agency as well. He hardly ever gives a teaching without telling his readers his, his own opinion of it, whether it's good or bad, how it relates to other arguments. Um, sometimes he uses a certain ruling as a springboard for his own discussion, which will go on for pages. Um, so to see it just as a collection of earlier material is really not um, is really not accurate and the other thing or the other problem with speaking it in this way is that there is enough evidence that, we, that this was a very normal text. Um, I have done quite a lot of research on the later reception of this book and there's hardly any reference to it in later words. So um, I think this is one indication that his book either he didn't intend it to be circulated or it wasn't very popular but it, it wasn't widely uh, received your copied. So we need to be careful before we see this as a reflection of rulings that were being applied or even being discussed in the 14th century. And um, so that's one key argument that I will definitely make about this book. Um, the other, the other really important argument that I see um, in the famous making is is he's answering a question that seems to have become relevant in the 14th century, which is do we even need non-Muslims in the realm of Islam? Um, should, they, should they be here? Do they have a right to stay here? And if they do stay here, what terms, um, what terms do we give them? Um, how do we incorporate them into um, Islamic society? And this is a really key question for him. It seems to have become relevant around about the realm of time that he was he was writing And I think this book is him working out an answer to to this question. Um, And part of his answer argues for the apologetic relevance of having Christians and Jews in a Muslim society. And this apologetic relevance he sees um, in their spatial demonstration of inferiority. This is why for him, um, space plays such a key role in in his um, interpretation of rulings because it's a way of visually demonstrating um, religious hierarchy, and religious hierarchy for him is is a key part of um, of proving the finality of of Islam. I'm not sure if that gets the point across clearly.
1: Absolutely, thank you. So, as we're coming to the end of our time, Antonia, I was wondering if you could uh, share with the listeners a bit about what you might be planning as your, as your next uh, uh, project after accomplishing this fantastic book, what might be the next uh, project that you're uh, thinking about? Uh, working? On.
0: I'm working on something very different now, actually. Um, I've moved out of Syria. I'm now working on North Africa. And I've moved away from the 14th century to the 9th and the 8th century. And I'm looking at the integration of Ethiopia, um, into the Islamic Empire and the processes of Islamication in North Africa more generally after the um, Muslim conquest of this region. And I'm looking at um, slave, slavery, slave trade routes, and the relevance of Islamic law to expanding these. So it's really a, different, um, really a different topic, it's a different period, it's also a different methodology. Um, but I hope to be able to bring it back to my interest in Islamic law through the relevance of um, legal rulings to slavery and the regulation of slave trade.
1: Minding the place, space, and religious hierarchy in Ibn al-Qayyim's Ahkam Ahl al dhimma uh, by Professor Antonia Bosenkweit, uh, published by Brill Press in 2020. Uh, Thank you so much, Antonia, for coming on the New Books Network for uh, so eloquently discussing this really important, significant uh, book for, you know, scholars of Islam, Islamic law, uh, religious studies, more broadly speaking. Uh, This is a really important and critical uh, study. And I'm sure our listeners really benefited from your erudite uh, commentary uh, on this book. So thank you so much for coming on the New Book Network.
0: thank Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Antonia Bozenkwet about her wonderful new book, Minding Their Place. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. And then you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, take care, stay well. And this is your host, Shir Ali Tareen, signing off. <laughs>